Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're taking a look this quarter at the book of Ephesians, and this week we're looking at lesson number four entitled How God Rescues Us. It's an interesting introduction to a 14-week study that we are doing, and we're well on our way. Let's begin today with prayer. Father, we ask that you will bless our study this week as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians. We ask that you'll help us to understand not just the grand themes that Paul shares in this book, but also how these wonderful truths apply to our lives today. We ask that you'll bless our time together, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're glad that you're here today, and we're also glad that our special guest is here, and that is Dr. John McVeigh. He is the president of Walla Walla University and, of course, the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson. John, good to see you again. Good to be here. Good to be back at it, studying a a great epistle. It is. It's a phenomenal epistle, and we're in lesson number four, week number four. Mm -hmm. We've got a ways to go, but we are laying quite a substantial foundation, uh, which we've done for the first three weeks, and now here we are looking at how God rescues us. Yes. And this passage that we're looking at today in Ephesians chapter 2 has a lot of meat in it. There's a lot to, to digest, as it were. Yeah. We're looking at essentially 10 verses mm-hmm. this week, mm-hmm. and Paul takes us on a, on a little journey through these verses. You might say that this, this section or this, this passage is divided up into three different segments. Mm-hmm. What are those different segments and the significance of each one of them? Yeah, if we were to divide it uh, three ways, uh, and by the way, the whole passage is, is about these believers in Ephesians and what they were like before they met Jesus, the profound transformation that Jesus makes in their experience, and then celebrating what God has done for them. And those really are the three parts. The, the first part is the pre-conversion existence of, of the addressees. They're spiritually dead they're practicing uh, trespasses and sins as the regular pattern of, of their lives. And so the sad pre-conversion existence of the now believers in Ephesus is the subject of verses 1 through 3. And then comes part 2, God's intervention to redeem them. Hallelujah. And his plans for them, verses 4 to 7. And then finally comes a kind of celebration of the gospel as it is exhibited in their in their story, uh, Ephesians chapter two verses eight through ten, a very famous passage. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, and so on. It's easy for us to forget that 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 celebration, that wonderful summation of the gospel, is rooted in the actual stories of. Once pagans, now Christians, uh, believers who live in Ephesus. And I imagine that, it, that we could see, we should see ourselves also in this progression that we're seeing here. Yes, uh, I think that's the key to applying it to our own hearts and lives, is this isn't just a story about some people way back in the first century, uh, but their story exhibits the patterns by which God relates to all of us and, and we can see that, in some sense, their conversion story is, is ours, too. Yep. And perhaps we're, we're getting the cart a little bit ahead of the horse. We're getting there. But let's, <laughs> let's take a look at these individuals. What was their life like, this pre-conversion experience? Where were they? 
Where did God bring them from? Well, it, it doesn't sound like a, a very happy existence, does it? Dead. It's not good to be to be dead generally, but they're they're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, chapter two, verse verse one. They're following the the course of this world, which is a little uh, difficult for us to get a handle on. But the patterns of behavior, the usual expectations of this world, which were negative and damning, uh, they're they're following along in those. They're they're following the prince of the power of the air, which is a way that Paul is referring to Satan. Right? They're under his command. They're following him. And he further identifies uh, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So they are already possessed by a spirit, but it's an evil spirit, right? And it has, that spirit has trained them to do evil, not to do, to do good. And, uh, and then in verse 3, he talks about that all of us were once in the same condition. And he summarized that condition as we once lived in the past passions of our flesh, just carrying out whatever our body says to do. Whatever your appetite says, you do it. And he sees that that is an unhelpful existence and that it points, us, points to the fact that everybody who's in that state is by nature children of wrath. Uh, that means that they, are look, they have nothing to look forward to in the future at the end of time except the judgment of God's wrath. And that's a very sad state to be in. You know, if we were left to our own devices and there was no intervention, we, would, we tend by nature to be selfish beings. We, we like the things that we like. We enjoy the things that we enjoy. And, uh, and that doesn't lead in a positive direction. But then we get to verse number four, and in verse number four, I, I would say it takes a sharp left, but it's really not a sharp <laughs> left. It's a 180. Yes, it so is a 180. It's completely turned around with two words. Those two words are, but God. Yes. So here we are headed in one direction, and, and then, but God, and there's a 180. What about those two words? Well, those are two of the most hope-filled, uh, resonant words in Scripture, aren't they? Because as you suggested, left to our own devices, left on our own, uh, we are children of wrath, we are, we are destined for eternal darkness, uh, but God. And, uh, and God enters into their story dramatically, a lightning bolt of grace, and the story changes with the intervention of God but God. Yeah, it's grand words, two, two of the grandest words in Scripture. So what happens now? We, we get to this, to this turn, mm-hmm. and but God. And it's interesting the way that he's described here, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. There's a, a black to white, left to right, darkness to light. Utter transformation. Complete transformation yes. here. What yes. happens with this? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a resurrection story, isn't it? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, looking at verse 5, uh, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, inserts that, that remark, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Now, there's, there's wonder packed into those words. There's grand spiritual blessing stuffed in there. And let's un- un- unpack that just a little bit because uh, three things happened to Jesus. Three grand events focused on him. Jesus is resurrected from the dead, right? He is ascended to heaven, and he is exalted or crowned in heaven. Those, those, three, those three things. And Paul seems to allude to those three. It's as though Christ scribes a, a, an ark across the cosmos. And in some way, that's really rather difficult for us to get our hands on and understand concretely. But we can know it's great news, right? In some way, we as believers track on that glorious cosmic ark of Jesus. We were dead in our sins Through the grace of God expressed in Jesus, we are raised to newness of life, right? And then the next next phrase is a little bit different. Made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Uh, That sounds like resurrection language, but it's probably actually referring to the raising of Jesus to heaven, the exaltation of Jesus. Because we have the beginning endpoint, made us alive, and the ending endpoint, seated us with him in the heavenly places, And if it's a sequence of three events, you'd expect that middle one to be referring to the ascension of Jesus. So uh, we we are resurrected with Jesus, we are are ascended with Jesus, and we are exalted with Jesus. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. We, We somehow participate in these three central events in the career of Christ. So we're seeing a a progression from being not just well, from being dead. It's tough yes. to be in a worse shape than dead. <laughs> That's tough. about yes. as bad a shape as you can be in. But then we see, as you said, the resurrection. Yes. And then the ascension. Right. And that's something that he wants us to experience as well. Exactly. You know, typically, if you, you think about people getting their act together in, in this world, in this life, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you end up in a better position, a better place. But being exalted to heaven, that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of anything that falls short of that. Yes. And, uh, and, and yet that's the picture that Paul gives us here. It's a very similar thought in Colossians. We've noted sometimes that Colossians and Ephesians are rather similar in their basic pattern and much of their content. And, and Paul in Colossians 3 verse 1 puts it this way, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Uh, Wonderful. It says, in some sense, believers are called to dwell in heavenly places, to to dwell in heaven with God and with Christ and with the Spirit, to find our true identity and our true place there. And that's an awe-inspiring and and a task to try to figure out just what, what Paul means by all of that. I think it really is, and and yet in these few verses, Paul helps us to at least get a glimpse mm-hmm. of that. He he gives us a a keyhole view, as it were, uh, to let us know what's possible. Yes, and and there are a great many people today who, well, the vast majority are dead in trespasses and sins. Some recognize it, others don't, and for those who do recognize it, sometimes there's that feeling of helplessness. Mm-hmm. A feeling of, well, yeah, this is my, my state, but 
what kind of hope is there? I've I've tried my best. I've done my best. Right. I want to do the right thing. I seem to remember Paul saying something along those lines mm-hmm. in another book. Yes. Wanting to do the right thing and and yet failing to do it. And yet here Paul gives genuine hope about what the future holds. Yes, he does. They have experienced this conversion. They have they have responded to to the call. Uh, the Spirit has entered them, has encouraged them to practice faith in Jesus, has given them the right and the ability to do so. They have, they have done that, and it has been a complete transformation from being in this growling, dark place of their lives to, to spiritually moving to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's an ex- expanse. That's a huge transformation, a great difference. An enormous one. And, of course, that's what God wants us to experience as well. And we're going to continue looking at how we can indeed experience that as Christians. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but before we do, I want to encourage you to pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. It is called Ephesians by John McVeigh. You can find this at itiswritten.shop. If you're enjoying this study on Ephesians and you want to learn more about it, this is the place that you need to go. Pick up the companion book at itiswritten.shop and you'll gain additional insights, depth, more stories, more Bible verses, more reference material to really add some significant depth and substance to your study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to come back in just a moment as we continue our study here this week. You don't want to miss a moment of it. We'll see you back in just a moment. With superheroes being big business, we ask ourselves what heroes really look like. A man in a fast food restaurant wrestles a gun out of the hands of a killer. A man in Canada risks his life to save a woman being attacked by a polar bear. A young man attempts to run across a continent to raise money for cancer research. The Medal of Honor is awarded to United States servicemen and women who've committed acts of uncommon valor. Heroes. But what's a hero, really? And who is the greatest hero of them all? Join me for The Hero. Learn that real greatness, true heroism is found in service and discover the identity of the real hero who has saved more lives than anyone else in history. Don't miss The Hero, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are looking at lesson number four on the book of Ephesians. And John, just a few moments ago, we talked about this grand transformation Mm -hmm. that God brings people through, wants to bring people through. And it's interesting in verses uh, six and seven here, there is an, an interesting passage or an interesting phrase that Paul uses. He says that he raises us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What are these heavenly places that that God wants us to sit in with Christ Jesus? Well, it's, a, it's an important question to ask, a helpful question, because Paul uses this phrase, heavenly places, several times in, in Ephesians. 
It's his principal way of referring to heaven, if you will. But it's, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than we might think because when we think of heaven, we tend to think of a place of utter safety, uh, a place that's free of all sin and temptation and grief and pain and so on. Uh, Paul's perspective on the heavenly places is a little different than that. The reason we know that is that we have a a reference in chapter 6, verse 12. Um, And it lists the various authorities, cosmic powers, um, spiritual forces of evil, and then comes the phrase, in the heavenly places. And we go, oh no, (laughs) that's just the crowd we would like to see excluded from heaven, right? We don't want them there. But in Paul's, in Paul's view here, uh, heaven is this, the heavenly places are this amazing space where the throne of God is, uh, where the important decisions about the future of humankind are, are crafted and made and, and, and lodged. And it's a place decisively marked by Christ's redemptive work. It's the place where Christ's rulership over the cosmos has been inaugurated at the very throne of God himself. All of that is, is true. But uh, the challenge, of course, is that there is something going on in these heavenly places because evil powers are in some sense said to live there. That's, that's their place too. Uh, one one author has, has talked a little bit about this. He's, he writes, Clearly, Paul thinks about these heavenly places as a battlefield. On one side is Christ, the field marshal, standing at the king's right hand, and we with him. On the other side are the principalities and powers which are alienated from God and opposed to him in their utter disarray, exercising their limited influence. So we'd like it to be a pure and peaceful place, but in some sense... These heavenly places are themselves a battlefield, not unlike a certain passage in Revelation, right? You Very true. The passage, there was war, war in, heaven. in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and so on. Uh, so in, in some sense, this is a place where the great controversy is, is in contest. And uh, it, it leads us to, to think perhaps a little bit differently about heavenly places than we have tended to think about heaven. In, in heavenly places, believers do not so much experience peace as they gain perspective. They gain understanding that their stories are part of the grandest stories of all, the story of the great controversy or the story of the cosmic conflict. So a little deeper, more fleshed-out idea of heavenly places. Not he's not talking about uh, clouds flitting through the sky. This is this is this is real stuff. We might wish to pick and choose amongst his mentions of the heavenly places, but we really can't, can we? We we have to take we have to take all of this together and try to make sense of it. It's a little bit more complex than the puffy clouds. Yes, it is <laughs> very true. <laughs> now that kind of brings us down to some of the perhaps more familiar verses in this passage that we're looking at. And verses 8 through 10, we, we hear these quoted with some regularity. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Then he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's the significance of these verses? I mean, we could go in a hundred different directions sure. in the significance of them. Sure. But as Paul is writing here in Ephesians 2, how does this all fit into his, his train of thought, as it were? Well, again, it's part of the, the narrative that he's providing of the conversion experience of these once pagans, but now Christian believers in, in Ephesus to whom he's writing. And so he's, he's telling their, their story. And this, in this segment, of course, he's telling about how they are saved and experience salvation. In, in the process of telling their story, though, he provides one of the grand summaries of the gospel uh, from the pen of any biblical author. One does think of uh, Paul's own summary in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you hear some of those themes in that summary uh, re-echoing, echoing afresh in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, don't you? Uh, and it's a, a wonderful celebration of the conversion and transformation of those saints at Ephesus. It's a wonderful summary of Paul's gospel in any era. So speaking of God's grace, and that's the only way any of us are saved, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. How expansive is that grace? How, what can, how, how can we begin to wrap our minds around that grace when we recognize how, how far short we fall of, well, of perfection, of what it takes to be saved uh, from a certain perspective? We're not perfect. Yes, um, I mean, we, correct. <laughs> if we can't can't yeah. save ourselves, no, no matter how not. much we try or how right. how good we happen to be able to be from this point forward, right. um, our our past condemns us. Right. A- and in walks grace. Yes. Elaborate on grace. Paul has mentioned in the first part of the conversion story that these ones in Ephesus, all of us as human beings are by nature children of wrath. And what I take him to mean there is that we are, in our natural state, uh, bent against God, bent toward sin, bent toward self-destruction, bent toward domination by demonic powers, and so on. That's, that's where, we, where we would naturally be. That's, that's plan A. That's the one everybody falls into. That's the natural place to go. But, uh, but God, <laughs> but God shifts us to plan C, the, the Christ-saturated, uh, Christ-blessed plan of salvation and redemption. And we, we hear that word in our dark, a lost state, and, and the Spirit comes into our lives and tells us about this salvation that we can have in Jesus. And it sounds too good to be true. Because we think we have to earn it, we have to figure out a way to manufacture it, and then comes that word grace into our lives. This is the free gift of God. This is grace. Uh, We often have defined that term as unmerited favor. Uh, But this is something a little beyond simply unmerited favor because these ones in Ephesus ourselves are children of wrath 
destined for punishment and destruction, right? Uh, that's what we deserve. So it's not just un- unmerited favor. It's that he pours out his grace upon ones who deserve, fully deserve, the entire opposite. And that's what makes the message of the gospel shine, doesn't it? It, it really does. And in this passage, just uh, just ten short verses, Paul takes us from children of wrath to this opportunity to receive this grace, which we don't deserve. As you said, we deserve the opposite, mm-hmm. and yet he gives it to us. If, uh, if, there were to, if there were somebody who was watching this program right now who says, yeah, the children of wrath, I identify with that. I've, yes. I've, I wanted to do the right thing. I keep failing. Sure. I keep tripping up, and in fact, tripping up is probably a, uh, not strong enough. I, I fall flat on my face over and over again. I want the grace. I don't know if I can believe that I can have that grace. Sure. What words of encouragement would you give to someone who is struggling mm. with something like that? You know, I would I would probably uh, uh, look into the eyes of, of such a one, and and I would I'd first of all identify with them. Their experience is the experience of all humankind. They. You, you, if, if you find yourself in that space today, you don't need to think that your experience is somehow strange or unusual, that you are unusually uh, uh, left out of God's equation of grace. Uh, this blackness and darkness that you may be experiencing in your heart and your mind uh, are, are very, very real. It is the common human experience. But into that darkness and into your darkness, God speaks the message of his love and his grace. And, and I, would, I would ask you, can you find it in your heart to hear the good news today? Can you find it in your heart to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe into your life the understanding that God is love, not in some abstract sense, but God himself loves you this day And could you begin, by God's grace and by the power of his Spirit, to sense your life being transformed by the realization that you are not outside the framework of God's goodness and his grace, but in fact he is drawing you right into his heart. He is pouring out his grace on you just now. John, thanks for helping us to remember those two words, but God, but God. And don't you forget those two words either, but God. He wants you to experience that grace. He wants you to experience freedom that comes from being in Christ, freedom from guilt, freedom from pain, freedom from condemnation. It's an experience that he wants you to have. That's what Paul was writing to the Ephesians about, is that experience of understanding God's grace, his power, and the brand new life and experience that he wants them to have, and he wants us to have as well. We are studying the book of Ephesians, and we are just getting started, and it only gets better from here. So I want to encourage you to join us again next week as John and I are going to be continuing to delve into this incredible subject, and we look forward to seeing you again when we again look at Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written.